starting back, uh, as I said, in 2 Corinthians 10. If you can, if you can uh, stand with me, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're actually going to do the entire chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Uh, now, just to remind you, Paul has shifted his tone here. So he was super congenial in 8 and 9, and so he's switching over back to kind of tense Paul because um, he's changing categories on us with some closing remarks. Chapter 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold um, toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening with you, my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who are, in the co- who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. F- but we will not boast beyond limits, <clears throat> but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned us to reach even you, for we are not uh, overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of, of Christ. We do not boast beyond the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in others' area influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness. We thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that you would use it this morning for our edification, for your glory, for the equipping of the saints, for the salvation of those who don't know you. Um, Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us soft and tender hearts to receive what it is that you're saying to us this morning. We love you, Lord, and we are absolutely desperate for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I said, there's a, there's a little bit of a shift going on here from chapter 8 and 9 back over to chapter 10. Second uh, Corinthians, as I've said, is kind of in three big sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 7, Paul is defending his apostolic authority, wanting to reconcile with them because of the rebuke that he had given them. And he shifts uh, in chapters 8 and 9 where he's talking about giving. And as we talked about giving, he's wanting to collect an offering for those that are Jews back in Jerusalem. Well, in chapter 10... He's switching to the next kind of section, chapters 10 through 13. He does take a little bit of a sharper tone, uh, but what he's doing in chapter 10 is going back to the same kind of thought of wanting to make sure that the Corinthians understand that his apostolic authority, as in the authority he has as an apostle, is sure. He wants them to know that it's sure. And so you can see here in chapter 10, he shifts back over. And as he's shifting back over in chapter 10, a, a lot of what he's doing is defending himself again and who he is and that he has the authority to say the things that he said. So that's why when he's uh, talking about I, Paul, entreat you, and uh, he's, he's talking about himself saying, what I'm saying is true. I know that my letter. some people say my letters are strong, but I'm kind of a, a meek, mild uh, not strong person face to face, but I'm the same all the way throughout. He's, he's reasserting who he is. And as he's doing that, he's talking about what a, a true man of God actually looks like. And so as we're looking at this, as Paul kind of defends who he is uh, in chapter 10, we're looking at what are the marks of a true man of God. What is the, the marks of a true man of God? So he's switching, as I said, focus and tone from 8 to 9 to 10. Um, from these eight and nine on generosity, 
uh, to these closing remarks in 10 through 13. And as he's moving from congenial to more combative, because it still super frustrates him that the super apostles came in or these false apostles came in and tried to change what are the, some of the things that he's done. Now, um, this chapter 10, uh, because there's such a switch, there have been some theologians that have, that have said, well, this is actually just a whole different letter. Uh, the, the shift in tone is so sharp that this has got to be something else that Paul's done, and maybe that Paul hasn't even written it. These would be in the more liberal kind of theologians. I don't think that that's the case. I just think that uh, Paul's d- decided, I've talked about money, and now I'm shifting and wanted to go back to talking about who my, my authority is. So this specific topic, uh, as he's looking at all of chapter 10, is just defending his ministry, defending his apostolic authority. And so he's talking about himself in chapter 10. And as Paul's talking about himself, the theme kind of plays itself out for us as this is what a man of God looks like. So that's what we're going to see today. What is a man of God? Here's what a man of God is. He's going to talk about himself. Now, uh, a couple things, important notes that whenever I... Uh, whenever I have uh, marks of a true man of God. Paul's talking about himself, and he is a man. So if you're not a man, then you can be thinking, well, not for me today, not true. So here, marks of a true man of God as the general mankind. So this can be for every single person. Uh, I'm going to point out in the scriptures as this is what Paul says, this is what Paul says, but it, it universally applies to all of us. So when you hear man of God, hear mankind, uh, not just men in general, although he is, he is a man and he is talking about himself. All right, so that's the first thing. Number two, uh, there will be, this isn't up to me, this is up to the Spirit as I see what's in the Scriptures, there will be some uh, stepping, as they say, you know, stepping on of toes. I don't mean to do that, but maybe there will be. Maybe you're fine. Maybe you won't feel convicted at all, but sometimes uh, there is stepping on of toes. You know, I think that... Uh, Whenever that happens, you should, you should resolve to say, okay, if the Holy Spirit is really convicting me, not FUD, because it doesn't matter. Like, I don't need to convict you of anything. The Holy Spirit does, and if he does, that's awesome. If he doesn't, that's fine too. Um, but if, there, if it does happen, try to pray right now that you would receive those things. Like if, if there's things that the text points out that you could be doing in your life, you should receive that. Um, Vody Balkum always says, if you can't say amen, then you've got to say ouch. Um, so... Uh, Maybe you'll say amen. Maybe you'll say ouch. We'll see. So verse 1. Um, uh, so as we're looking at this, uh, there's a build that, that Paul's wanting to get to in verse 7. So I, wanna, I want you to hear, like, verses 1 through 6 is kind of a bit of, a, of an intro that leads us into the point that he's trying to make starting in verse 7. So when he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Uh, I, I really, really want you to see this. And then in verse 2, he, he goes, I beg of you. And then he kind of goes into a little bit of a longer sentence. But verse 1 and verse 2 tell us, I'm entreating you, and I'm begging you. Now go to verse 7. Go to verse 7. I'm entreating you. I'm, embedded, I'm, I'm begging you to, and then here's what he's asking them to do, verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. Now, it's easy to miss that. that that's what he's actually trying to do because verse Three and four and five and six are so awesome. And we're taking every thought captive. We're destroying arguments. We're destroying strongholds. And then you can miss kind of like the big points of how he's trying to structure the sentence. But if you look at the sentence, verse one and verse two tell us, I'm, I'm entreating you. Verse two, I'm begging you. Verse seven, look at what's before your eyes. Remember the big idea is um, Paul's talking about himself. Like, I really am uh, an apostle, and I really do have this authority, and you really should listen to what I'm saying. And if you think that what those guys are saying is true, you don't need to do that. Look at me. You know me. I was with you. I planted this church. Look at what's before your eyes, or don't miss the obvious of, of who I am and what, what I've said. Hey, Corinthians, you know who I am. You look at my life. You look at what I've done. Look at what's obvious you will see that I am actually a true man of God. That's, that's what the point of what he's trying to say here. I don't know why he keeps doing that, but we're just going to have to deal with it. So um, that's, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the intro that Paul's wanting you to see. Look at who I am. Look at what's before your eyes. Don't miss this. That really, really annoys me. I, I really want it to stop. Um, so, and then he says, look at what's before your eyes, and then he's going to tell us uh, something about uh, what makes the first kind of mark of a man of God. 
If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remain, remind himself uh, that, let's try it again. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. They're saying that they're of Christ. We are too. And that tells us the first mark of a true man. Number one, the mark of a true man of God is that he is Christ's. That he literally belongs to Jesus. Paul's wanting the Corinthians to understand about that being Christ is what makes him legitimate as an apostle. The reason why I'm an apostle, the reason why you can listen to me is because I'm Christ's. The false apostles had tried to come in to say that Paul was not legitimate, that he was illegitimate. And they made a claim that he's not really an apostle, but they're of Christ. And this is an imperative. He's saying, look at what I'm saying. I want you to really hear this. This is an imperative. Look at me. I belong to Christ. Now, that may be, of course, extremely obvious on the surface. And you might say, um, of course he is. Uh, if he's a man of God, how could he not be Christ? Uh, well, that's true. If anyone is God, he is Christ. But that's precisely the point that Paul's trying to make. If I claim to follow God, if I belong to God, if I'm a man of God, you have to understand that that means that I'm also Christ. But being Christ's means specific things. If you're going to be a man of God and you say, I am Christ's, I belong to him, then it means specific things. And I could go through the entire New Testament and show about 10,000 things that it means, right? We don't, but we don't have to do that because we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're just going to stay in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and see at least three things that it means. Um, oh my gosh, that's just, that's just killing me. I wish that I knew what was going on. Give me one second here. All right, we're going to try that. I don't know if that's going to do anything. I'm going to stick it here to see if that changes anything. All right, so... Um, being Christ means at least three specific things. It means at least three specific things here in the text. Again, the entire New Testament could give us 10,000, right? But let's look at three specific things that it, that it tells us. So if you go back over to chapters one, chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see some of them. So I myself, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, of how I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you. Here it is, verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present... I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as to count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Walking according to the flesh. So the first thing that we know is being a man of God means that you don't walk according to the flesh. You don't walk according to the flesh. Being someone that walks according to the flesh means there's someone that's totally comfortable with sin. I'm totally comfortable with sin in my life. I'm comfortable sinning. I'm not just comfortable with sin. I'm also comfortable with sinning. Being Christ means the opposite of that. You can't stand that. It means we are never comfortable with sin. We are never comfortable with sinning. We hate sin. We hate the consequences of sin. Satan tempts us to walk according to the flesh, but we renew our minds instead not to walk according to the flesh, but instead to walk according to the Spirit. This is how Romans chapter uh, 8 talks about Walking according to the flesh versus walking according to the Spirit. So I'm going to read Romans 8, starting at verse 5, so you can hear kind of the full thing of what he says. Starting verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So those who love sin, that's what they set their minds on. That's what they think about constantly. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the flesh of the Spirit. And so if you're going to be a man of God, you're going to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That means those who are not believers in Christ, never can they please God because never do they live for the glory of God. Indeed, they cannot because they are not Christ's at that time. Maybe they will be. Depends on what you think about uh, predestination. Anyway, verse 9, another topic. You, however, this is what Paul says, are not in the flesh but in the spirit 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's what it means to not be someone who walks according to the flesh, but walks according to the Spirit. If you're Christ, you do walk according to the Spirit. If you are, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Jesus or of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But here it is. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is all walking to what we're saying here. Being Christ means you don't walk according to the flesh, you walk according to the Spirit, which means you want to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Meaning, when sin is killed in your life, you are playing a part. That's exactly what Philippians 2, 11 and 12 say. But it's still Christ. It's still the Spirit that's helping you do it. And so you are, and I are, absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. This is literally Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. So you have a spirit in you, like just who you are, and then you have the Holy Spirit come inside of you, and they're bearing witness with one another that we literally are the children of God. And For if children, then heirs. If heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with him that we also may be glorified with him. And so Paul, of course, outlines for us in greater detail in Romans 8 what he means when he says walk according to the flesh. That's verses 5 through 17. But if we are Christ's, then we do not walk according to the flesh. We hate sin. We hate the consequences of sin. We're not comfortable with sin. We're not comfortable with sinning. If you're a man of God, you are Christ's. And it means you hate sin. It means you hate it. Now, keep going. So it says that also in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now this is very similar to what we just talked about, but he's just talking about um, walking according to the flesh to walking according to the Spirit. So the second thing about being Christ, you can put up B, is being Christ means that we access the divine power within us and we see and within us and the weapons of warfare that he's given us to seek to destroy strongholds. This is all what he's saying in verse 3 and 4, but he's saying that we, we, if we have the Holy Spirit, we want to access the divine power in us, the Holy Spirit, so that we can actually not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. If we really hate sin... We want sin dead. Men of God, women of God that belong to Christ, they can't stand sin in their life and they want it gone. They want it gone. They, instead of walking according to the flesh, want to walk according to the Spirit. If someone comes to you and says, this is what I see in your life in regard to sin, then you don't buck against that. Instead, you, because you hate sin so much, want to hear what they have to say and you want to take into consideration what they have to say because they love you. And if they're in Christ, they certainly don't want that in your life. And you should want to listen to them and you should want it gone. Th this, happens, um, I <coughs> this happens to me all the time with my wife. And whenever I hear it, I immediately want to defend myself and think this can't be right. And then I want to talk about her. But this is all wrong, right? Whenever she's pointing things out, it's because she loves me. She wants me to be a man of God. She wants me to remind myself that I'm in Christ. She really wants me to stop sinning. I really want to stop sinning. And so in the, that moment, I have to stop being prideful and take into what she's saying so that it doesn't happen. Or my children as well. My children point it out as well all the time. And I have to stop being prideful and say, you're right. You're right. You're right. I don't like sin. I want to instead access the divine power that's in me and wage warfare against these strongholds, and by the Spirit, destroy them. Destroy them in my life. This is what we should want. And so that's what he's saying, tell us to in verse 4 and 5. Now, 
there's, there's a deeper thing that he's going to tell us in verse 5 and 6 also about what it means to be Christ's. Verse 5 and 6, look. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the next thing is, Mark of being a true man, that means he's Christ. Being Christ means you seek to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's, there's two ways to think about this, kind of the simple, like on the surface way, but then there's also a, a, a deeper way. The, by this, he speci- he's specifically saying he wants to destroy all the wrong thoughts in his mind about who God is, about who God is. Paul is saying that any argument or any opinion of the day that's contrary to truth it's not that it just needs to, like, don't think about those things. It's not that. They need to be destroyed, is what he says. This is, what, this is the language that he uses. Wrong thoughts about God are not stuff that we should just kind of avoid, like cones in the street, traffic cones in the street, so we don't get a dent in our car, right? Wrong thoughts about God in our mind should be destroyed. They're satanic, and they're not obstacles to maneuver through they are things that must be destroyed. Thinking wrongly about God is something he cannot stand. Look at it again. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. There is the knowledge of God and those, those arguments and opinions that are contrary to the knowledge of God are not just something that you just want to be aware of and just need to get rid of. Make sure you avoid those things. They must be destroyed. They are wrong and terrible to have in our minds. Being ready to punish every disobedience when you, obedience is in Christ. So we cannot allow these things. Instead, our minds should not let false things about God enter them. We must take them captive and destroy them. So in one simple sense, it means, when I said there's two ways to think about it, kind of an easy way and a deeper way. The easy way in a simple sense is something in your, your mind and tells you to disobey God or tells you to sin. You take that thought captive and obey Jesus instead. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so in one sense, it can mean just in the way that you behave, the way that you live. And we've already talked about that in point A and B. But the the deeper sense doesn't necessarily have to do with that. It's the other way. In a deeper sense, it means that false ideologies, false ideologies that are presented to you or spoken to you as if they're true, that are put up against the word of God, if those things are wrong, You want to destroy this false ideology. You want to destroy this false argument about God with the word of God. You take every thought captive that does not line up with the word of God. Only true thoughts about God should be in our mind so that we believe those things, not the false ones. So we take every thought captive, especially whenever they combat against what is the true things about God. That is a false ideology. That is a lofty opinion. Those things aren't true. I take my mind captive so that that is not true. I say, I destroy that, not only with me, but if there's people I know that believe those things, I help them see only by the word of God. I can't just, in my opinion, throw these things out about why it's wrong. I show them. Here's what the Bible says. Here's why the Bible says it's true and why that is wrong. We destroy those things because, you know, Listen, destroying arguments, you can come off as a, as a massive jerk, right? This is, not, this is not the goal. This is not the goal is to destroy something and destroy the person along with that. Instead, we want to be winsome. We want to be Christ-like. Now, all three of these things, uh, walking according to the Spirit, accessing the divine power, um, taking every thought captive, all three of these things must be in our own hearts and minds and lives fortified with the Word of God. You can't do those three things without having the Word of God uh, in your life continually. You are, whether you realize it, massively dependent upon the Word of God. And so these have to be fortified. The Word of God is absolutely crucial in the life of the Christian. If you read the Bible on Sundays when we stand, because an elder is about to explain that text to you, and that's basically the summation of your word of God that week, and that's all you get, that's not good. That's good, but that's not great. There should be way more. You should be studying the word yourself, a student of the word. Uh, J. Mac expounds. He, I, we're on a J. Mac basis now. That's John MacArthur. I just call him J. Mac now. Um, 
the key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient at wielding the sword of the word of God against the lies people believe. Read that sentence again because it is the thing that explains everything he's going to say. The key to being successful in spiritual warfare is becoming proficient at wielding the sword of the word of God against the lies people believe. It is impossible to fight error without knowing the truth. Just as soldiers train constantly in the use of their weapons, so much also Christian soldiers constantly study the scriptures. Only the power of God's truth can smash the lies of satanic false systems. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul exhorts his protégés, Titus and Timus, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Only then would they be able to heed his exhortation to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we, we have to. I mean, if we really want to live a life that displays that we are a man of God and that we are Christ's, we are dependent upon the Word of God. We're absolutely dependent upon the Word of God. So Mark 1 is that we, if they think they're Christ's, Paul says, so am I. Mark 1, uh, a true man of God is Christ's. Mark 2, look at verse 8. Verse 8. Look at what's before your eyes. I, b- I belong to Christ. Not only that, here's something else. Verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, or man, he's, again, he's trying to establish that authority with the Corinthian church. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave, here it is, for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Now, he's talking in context about uh, his authority with the Corinthian church, but as he's doing that, he makes this amazing remark about a reason why the authority was given to him. God gave me this authority, Corinthian church. You should listen to me. And he makes this, um, I mean, unbelievable remark. For even if we're boasting my authority a little too much, what the Lord gave, here it is, for building you up. For building you up. Which shows us the second thing. Mark of a true man of Christ. Mark of a true man is his impact on the church. The mark of a true man of God is his impact, this should say of God, it doesn't say it, is his impact on the church. Paul is desperately wanting this Corinthian church to realize that he's an apostle, and he wants him, them to know that his apostolic ministry was given to him by God. God gave this to me, and the last thing that Paul wants to do is boast before these Corinthians about this God-given position of apostolic authority. He wants them to just, as he says in verse 7, look Look at what's obvious before your eyes. But if he has to continue to speak, continue to uh, set firm his apostolic authority because of the false apostles that came in and misguided them, if he's going to do it, he will. He doesn't want to. He realizes it sounds boasty. It's boasty, you know? Is that a word? It's boasty, and he doesn't want to be boasty. Um, But uh, he's going to do it anyway because he sees that it's crucial. And we need to notice this particular phrase, why God gave it to him. For the Lord gave for building you up. Paul was given this position so he could plant the Corinthian church and build up the Corinthian church. And this, of course, means to plant the church means to teach, nurture, help mature the church as well. He came in there, and he doesn't want to just start like witness and then leave. He wants to build them up. A true man of God wants to build up his local church. A true man of God wants to have an impact on his church. This is what Paul does. Paul's talking about a, the, the church, the local church in Corinth. He's not talking about church universal here. He's talking to a church, which is Corinth. And he's saying, God gave me this apostolic authority to build you up, to build you up, Corinth. And this is what a true man of God, woman of God, should want to have happen in their life. We should desire to have an impact on our local church. If you're a believer, you should be in a church. And if you're in a church, you should deeply desire to have an impact over the course of your lifetime on that local expression of gathered together people. So don't even hear when I say your church, you're thinking about an organization. That's very American. That's not what I mean. You should have a deep desire to have a massive impact 
on the people at Remedy Church. The people here should be deeply impacted because you are a believer, because you belong to Christ, because you're a man and woman of God. God's plan is the local church, and he wants us, each of us, every single one of us, to invest in each other's lives day by day. He wants us to help by teaching and nurturing and seeking to mature and using our gifts in our local body, in the gathering together of the saints on Sundays, and as we scatter to be uh, Christians throughout the rest of the week. A, a real man of God, a real woman of God, should have an impact on the other people in their church body. So in context, these false teachers are coming bringing discord, they're bringing disunity, they're bringing death, destruction, stuff like that right there. They're doing stuff like that. I, I'm going to see if I can just... Will this go in the live stream? Maybe this will go in the live stream. I'm going to hold this, and maybe I'm just going to try this for a second. Let's see. If, is this working? Can you all hear me? It's not on yet. It's going to come on in a second. I might even just turn this. Oh, there we go. We're going to do old school style where the preacher holds the, 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 the mic. Does this go in the live stream? I'm going to pray it does. All right, I'm turning this off. All right, and this always has bothered my ear, so now it's off. All right, so here we go. Um, so Paul's telling them that they need to, that the, the false teachers at the time, whenever they come into the church, they bring discord, they bring disunity, destruction, death. That's what the false teachers bring. But he's telling them, true followers of Christ are going to do the opposite of those things. You're not going to bring discord or disunity. You're going to bring unity. You're going to bring the people of God together. You're not going to do things to destroy the church. You're going to do things to grow the church. You're not going to bring death to the church. You're going to bring life to the church. And that's every single one of us. All of us are tasked with this. As being, a, as being Christians. So I can remember uh, whenever I was at a church, this is the church I, uh, I, I was a youth minister at before I planted this 12 years ago, whatever it was. Um, so I was there, and I was there for four years, 04 to 08. Uh, and 06, the pastor left. And when the pastor left, I stepped in as the youth guy that, that you know didn't really know anything. Um, but uh, I'm just going to teach the word and see what happens. But I'm going to be super bold, and I probably was a little too bold that I shouldn't have been this bold. But nevertheless, you know, what did I know? I was right out of seminary, and you know, let's do it. So, so I'm preaching this sermon at, right after the pressure, uh, right after the sermon left, uh, the, the pastor left, uh, fresh out of seminary, and the sermon, of course, it wasn't that impressive, uh, but uh, God used it anyway, uh, that, which is not the point of the illustration. But here's the point. So, as I was preaching, there was a man there that day that used to be really active in the church. He used to be really active at the church I was at. And life got busy, and he had some kids, and his, he got a few promotions at, at his job. And then all of a sudden, he had to pull away from doing things at the church so that he could concentrate on the different things with his job that he had to do uh, and taking care of his kids, etc. And I'm preaching the sermon, and the pastor had just left. And I'm basically saying, listen, I don't really know what I'm doing as, as the, the youth guy, but we're going into some mess right, near, right now at a church, and I can't do this. I need all of you to step up and start being the church body. That's basically what I said. And he realized at that moment that he had let the busyness of life and job promotions and kids pull him away from what is the most important, one of the most important things we can do as believers, which is be a part of our local church and have an impact on our local church. Which brings me back to the things I'm saying in the beginning. If you've been three weeks to where you haven't even, I haven't been at church yet, you're doing it wrong. Like, you're missing out on everything that God has designed for us to be a part of a church. You should have a mass, your job, being too busy, getting promoted, because your kid's drawing you away, if it's making you miss out on having an impact, then you're not living out in the local expression church body the way that Christ intended. He wants you to have that much of an impact on your local church because you're the body. You might just be the toenail. <laughs> you might be the nose. You might be something a part of the body. I don't know what your gift is, but it's important, and you should be there. And so he knew his church needed him, and he made a change that day, uh, and he realized, and I watched a man that I didn't really even know, and I had been there two years, who apparently had been really active in the church before that. I watched a man that I didn't even know, after two years, reinsert himself into the uh, church. He became a deacon. He became the lead deacon. He led mission trips. He got super involved in the youth group as well, and I'm sure he's super active there as well. Became part of the pastor search committee. Like, he, he was reinserted, so everybody respected him. He just had been MIA for two years. Because life got busy. That's really easy to do. It's really easy to do, let life get, get busy. But 
a true man of God is determined to have an impact on his local church. So here, here's some application points and thoughts and questions here. How does Remedy need you? How does Remedy Church need you? You should know that. You should think about that. How does, how, when I say Remedy, I don't mean the organization. I don't mean the, they need me to, you know, fix the sidewalk. That's not the people. How does Remedy Church need you? How does the people at Remedy Church need you? How are you making an impact on Remedy Church? What do you specifically bring to Remedy Church so that it's built up? Um, how can you start doing a specific thing this week? How can you start doing a specific thing for the people of Remedy Church this week? Um, coronavirus is not an excuse. There, we, have, we have technology now. We have Zoom and FaceTime and text message. We have, this is unbelievably advanced right now in technology. So it's, once the vaccines come out, then I can start having an impact. No, you can do it right now. It, it's different right now. I, I give you that, and, you know, I can't stand it. <laughs> but it is what it is, right? Um, we, uh, we had 10 people, 10 people, including, including uh, Zoom for corporate prayer Wednesday. That's not a lot. It should be a lot more. All of us should want to be a part of corporate prayer. We should deeply desire to have an impact on our church. Um, and one of the ways, I would say one of the greatest ways we can make a difference in our city is by prayer. If we don't believe that prayer is the foundation of having an impact on our city, that it's just going and doing stuff, then we think we have more power than God. If you want to have an impact, it starts with being a part of the things the churches are do our church is doing, like outreach, outreaches whenever we do that, evangelisms, prayer. Um, it seems like that there are quite a bit of people at Remedy that take much greater responsibility at other things other than the impact on their local church. We can let things get busy in life and miss out on some of the most important things, which is having an impact on, on what the Lord wants us to do inside of our local body. I can't think of more important things that God calls us to do while we're on here on earth than to have a significant impact on our church being built up other than our own family. I can't think of much more. Um, so you should want to, after your 80 years is done, 90 years is done, whatever it is, when we all go to heaven and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord, for that to be true because we've served in our local church and we had an impact on the other people's lives in our church. So the second mark of a true man of God is that he deeply desires to have an impact on the church or to say it in his local church, in her local church. We have, I have realized my gifts and I deeply desire that I'm supposed to be using those in my church. Third one. He keeps going in verse 9, I do, not want, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. So uh, we've already talked about this third letter, this severe letter where Paul came across pretty strong. And he's saying, I don't want to appear to be frightening with my letters. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1, Paul says, I entreat you. And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am Humble when face to face with you, but bold when I'm away. He does write boldly, but he's entreating them. He's really wanting to entreat them by meekness and gentleness. As he says in verse 9, I don't want to be frightening or appear frightening or terrifying. It can also be translated with you. With you. So uh, the false apostles had come in and had tried to assign to Paul the very evil things that they were actually familiar with and guilty of doing themselves. And that instead of letting the Corinthians realized that they were doing it. They just said, look at Paul, he's doing it, but that's what they were doing. Um, they said that Paul was abusive and that he was intimidating, and that's what they were doing to, to the Corinthians. And Paul was neither one of those things, and he didn't want to seek to do one of those things. Referring to all four of his letters, Paul says, my heart is not to be scary, my heart is to actually be compassionate. Verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. He wrote four. If he doesn't want to be frightening, then he wants to be compassionate. He wants to be, as this verse 1 says, I want to be meek and gentle as Christ is. I want to come across as unbelievably compassionate, which tells us our third mark. 
a true man of God, a, true mark, a mark of a true man of God is the compassion for people. He wants to have and display that he has compassion. Uh, a spiritual discipline um, on a church that Paul is exercising, that's not easy to do. He, he is disciplining them for their, uh, the way that they wrongly believe. And he wants to see them see their sin that they're in and repent of it. And whenever Paul is doing that, it's easy for the Corinthians to say, you're pointing out my sin and wanting me to repent. You're mean and intimidating and terrifying because you're pointing out my sin. But we have to realize that this is not abuse. One of the best things that Paul can do is show them their sin and call them towards repentance. Of course, it has to be done in a Christ-like way. But Paul's wanting them to see uh, the claim that people are making against me that I'm intimidating and fearful and abusive. It's not true. I need to be delicate when I point these things out to you. I need to be delicate when I'm pointing you towards repentance. But it must also be done. And the most loving thing I can do for a sinner is to call them to repentance. It has to be done like Christ would do it, but it still has to be done. And this is true compassion. And this is what Paul is saying. Remember in chapter 7, verse 2, when he looks at them and he says, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. Make room in your hearts for us. Just as we've made room in our hearts for you, make room in your hearts for us. He's pleading with them to see, love us like we love you. Have compassion on us like we have compassion on you. The us is Paul and his, and his ministry compatriots. So he's wanting them to see that he does have true compassion. When Jesus, think about it this way. When Jesus in John chapter 4 uh, in Cana, when he's at the well with the woman and he points out her sin... Right? He says, yeah, you've had five husbands, and now the guy you live with is not even your husband right now. Is Jesus being compassionate right then as he points out sin? Of course he is. But is he still pointing out sin? Yes. When he did this, people could say, Jesus, you're not being compassionate when you do that. They would be wrong, but he was. And so Paul was full of compassion. I entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I'm begging of you. I'm entreating you to look at what's before your eyes. An apostle that planted this church, that's seeking to build it up, that loves you. That's who Paul was before them. And so he had unbelievably, com unbelievable compassion. Now, if you keep going, we're going to see another thing in verse 10 and 11. Um, so we're still in the context of all the things they're saying. For they say Paul's letters are weighty. And strong, but his bodily presence, whenever he's in front of you, he's a weak man. His speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we be, say by letter when I'm absent, we do by present. We do when present. So the false apostles have built some kind of straw man about Paul saying, trying to build this false dichotomy that in his writings, he's this really awesome, impressive person. But when he's in front of you, he's actually a totally different person and he's weak and he's actually an imposter. He's like, he's like a hypocrite. He's a totally different person. They would say his writings are strong, but face to face, he's an impressive. And so what they're trying to say, wickedly say, Paul's a fake. Paul's a fake. That's what they're trying to say about him. He's one way face to face and he's another way uh, when he's in front of you. This is the way he writes, and here, here he out, here, here's the way he is face to face. And Paul's saying is, what I write, I do. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not a fake. He's saying that his life is consistent, that he's the same person in his letters, and he's the same person when he's present. He's not a hypocrite. He actually has integrity. And so that's the fourth one. A mark of a true man of God is that he's known by his integrity. He's known by his integrity. So just simply say it this way. Can that be said of you? That you're known by your integrity. Are you the same in front of people as you are when no one is looking? David has summed it up for us in Psalm 139 when he says it this way. Psalm 139 verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? A man of integrity, a woman of integrity is the same in front of people as they are when no one's around. Because you can't ever not get away, from, you can't get away from God. There's not like some place on earth you can go where God can't see. 
Oh, and God can't see me in this room. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. All of our life is before God, quorum Deo, before the face of God. All of our life is lived out quorum Deo, before the face of God. We don't live one second without him knowing what we're doing. So we should be a Christian that is Christ-like everywhere. And Paul says that. I am the same everywhere. I am not just one way in one place and one way. I'm not a fake. Men of God, women of God are known by their integrity. Lastly, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you what, what I think verses 12 through 18 saying, and you can see it. So number five, mark of a true man of God is that he's known by his humility. His humility. Um, this is, the, I think, the summation of what Paul's doing in verses 12 through 18, is that he's pointing out his humility. If you look at verse 12, not that we uh, dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are committing themselves, but when they measure themselves by another and they compare themselves with another, they're without understanding. Paul doesn't compare himself his, himself, himself, he does not like multiple people. He, Paul doesn't compare himself to others. He only measures himself next to God. That's what humility is. You can see it another place. He stays in his area of influence, verse 13. Um, but we will not boast beyond our limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us. And then he adds in that little, to reach even you. God assigned me an area of influence, Corinthians, to reach you and see you get converted uh, God used me so that you could come to Christ. You can, you can trust me. God used me to actually help you cross over from death to life. God did it. But the point is that he's trying to make, I, I stay in my, my own area of influence. We say it in, in, in 2020, we, Paul stayed in his own lane. He, he knew his lane, he stayed in his lane. Um, granted, it was a big lane. Paul had a massive lane, right? There's no doubt about it. He wrote the Bible. He planted lots and lots of churches. He went on these massive three missionary journeys. It was a big lane, but he's saying, I stayed in my big lane. And Corinthians, you were in my lane. Uh, and so I'm not trying to do other things that other people are doing. That's what those false apostles that came in did. They, they got out of their lane, and they down-talked me, and they, they spread wrong, wrong rumors about me. But I stayed in my lane. Another thing is he didn't take credit for people's labors. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way with you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond the limit in the labors of others. There it is. Uh, we're not taking other people's credit. But our hope is that your faith increases our area of influence um, among you who may be greatly enlarged. And this is awesome. I always love this verse. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. If the Lord grants us to actually go from here and see more people get saved, praise the Lord. That's what I want. Um, without boasting or work already done in others' area of influence. So to me, a man of humility, he's not taking credit for what other people have done. The false apostles had done this. They had taken credit for Paul's work. Paul planted the church in Corinth, not them. And they were boasting beyond the limit of their, their labors. They were saying, look at all the stuff that we did when they didn't do any of it. They were not humble people. And then lastly... Verses 17 and 18, here we can see that this humble man of God wants God to get all the glory. Um, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In the end, all glory goes to God. A humble man wants all glory to go to God, not us. If we should boast, we're going to boast in what God does. Galatians 6, 14. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast in anything by which... I say it, let me read it again. But far be it for me to boast in anything except for the, Lord, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm not going to boast about anything except for the cross of Christ. Humble men realize that they have nothing about themselves to boast about. Instead, we proclaim the gospel, and if someone comes to Christ, praise be to God. He receives all the glory, not us. And so we should be humble and not compare ourselves to other people, instead, only to Christ. Seek to do what the Lord has called us to do, not other people. Don't take credit for what others do, but we, we do what God has uh, assigned us to do, and we give all the credit and all the glory to God. This is what a humble man of God does. So let's conclude this way. Um, when we say the mark of these true men is known by these things, realize um, we are never going to be able to do these things perfectly. Only Christ is. That's the good news. The good news is that he's the only one who has done these things perfectly, and he's the only one that can do these things perfectly for us on our behalf. 
So don't hear this list as, if I don't do this, then I am in big trouble. Hear this list as, if you're in Christ, you can do this. Do not seek to do this on your own power. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has done everything for us on our behalf. Praise the Lord. And so our faith and our trust and our hope is only in Christ and his work on the cross, not our ability to do these things. And therefore, since he has done these things for me on on my behalf and his righteousness has been imputed into me, now I walk forward in that justification, in that declaration of innocence, in that declaration of holiness, in order to lift these things out, not as law-keeping in order to be saved, but instead now as worship. The Lord has let me accomplish these things because he's already called me completely um, forgiven in Christ. And now I do these things out of worship for him. He is the Lord. He is the one that has made the impact on the church. He is the one that has compassion for his people. He is the one with perfect integrity. He is the one who is completely humble, Philippians 2. And we can do those things in Christ. That's the whole point of being in Christ. You're not called to do these things to have a right relationship with God. You already have it in Christ. We do these things out of worship. We do these things out of worship. The gospel is such unbelievable good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. When we hear texts like this and we hear that we need to do these things, it's certainly easy for us to, as we hear them, revert right back over into get it done mode or else God's mad at me. And I pray, Lord, that we would remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel right now as we think and even as we go to the table, that it's because of Christ declaring us righteous that we can actually be humble, be a person of integrity, have compassion for people, seek to live out uh, with a deep desire to have an impact on the church, uh, not live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit and destroy lofty arguments that is only in Christ, already given to us, that we can do this. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for Christ. Help us never, ever, ever think that we have to revert over to law-keeping, but always live in the gospel. The gospel is such good news for us. And we thank you for Christ who has accomplished these things for us. Lord, we do ask that we would have these things happen in our life. And we thank you that they're not earning righteousness, but they're giving evidence of the righteousness that has been graciously bestowed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.